Yeah, before parting with your money, always ask how your interests are aligned. The wealthy always want to make sure that their interests are aligned, not just with fees, but also if anything goes wrong, who gets hurt. What I'd issue, what I would urge you to do is that if you're looking at anything in real estate, specifically investing in something with someone else, ask yourself, how are my interests aligned and what happens if things go wrong? And the best way to ask that is to ask the hard questions is, who's really in charge of this and are they qualified to really manage this project? And then that'll really, I think, peel the layers back where you won't feel bad saying no to maybe friends and family who are trying to experiment. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 218. Clark, how's it going? What's going on in your world? It, uh, it's going it's going pretty well. A couple of days after Christmas here, so Merry Christmas, everybody, or Merry Late Christmas two days ago, and, and Happy New Year coming up. Yeah, we just about Boxing Day yesterday in Canada. What is it? Say it again. Boxing Day, right? The twenty sixth. You don't celebrate that holiday, Clark? What kind of what kind of <laughs> what kind I, of friend of Canada I don't are think you? I knew about that. I don't think I knew about that. Yeah, man, that's that's a that's a big deal. I mean, I guess maybe for us that grew up in. In the Northwest, but yeah, Boxing Day is a big deal. It's How the day do you after. Celebrate? I, dude, I, I don't really celebrate, but it's 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 Boxing Day in Canada, man. It's like huge holiday. You just said it was a big deal. I know I celebrate it, but we don't do anything special for it. Our Canadian neighbors do. I should ask them though. We have a few Canadian friends. You've got a few Canadian friends. We had a few Canadian millionaires. We've had a few Canadian millionaires. And, you know, I'm sure they they do post Christmas sales and watch hockey, right? That's what. That's, that's that's kind of a something that happens on the 26th, but yeah, we're right in the thick of the holidays here, and got New Year's coming up. A lot of people talk about uh, bonuses. It's kind of bonus time this year, right? Yeah, totally. So I just came across an article. This is just on CNBC. It says year-end bonuses are back. Here's what to do with yours. It says save and invest. So that's kind of the boring part, but I'll give you the highlights. It says. Google said it will give all employees, even interns, a one-time cash bonus of $1,600. Tyson Foods said it was paying hourly workers at its meatpacking plants between $300 to $700 each holiday. And then it says almost a quarter of all companies, about 23%, said they are offering a bonus based on company performance. Last year was only 12%. So maybe, what does that mean? There's more bonus money to go around here, right? Yeah, I saw a couple of oil companies recently uh, here in Texas announce, and I can't remember the name of the one, but I think they're paying a minimum $75,000 bonuses all their employees based on tenure as well. Uh, if they've minimum been with the how company, much? Like 75000 75000 Yeah, it's crazy, man. Some of these companies, wow. you know, these record years. Yeah, that, that company is Hill Corp Energy Corp, $75,000 Bonuses is a reward for reaching multi-year expansion and production goals. And then they're also going to give another $25,000 to donate to charities of their choice. Um, this was just probably in Bloomberg. This was announced just not too long ago. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think this is the second or third year they've done it too. But I guess gas prices peaked and they're, they're a drilling company. So anyway, interesting. You know, some companies pay these, what, pre, pre year end, some pay after year end. Uh, companies pay them all over, but definitely something to think about if you're getting a bonus 
and if you can do some tax planning around that or not, depending on your situation, uh, but definitely something to be thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. So this week we have Sal. He's a guest interview. We're getting into different topics, including discussion about high net worth individuals, how they invest, and managing generational wealth, which is something a lot of listeners have written into us about. We occasionally bring on a subject matter guest and expert to discuss these different ty- types of topics, and Sal is one of those. Last week we had Stephen, net worth of just under six hundred thousand dollars, a little over half in in uh, retirement protected and tax protected or tax advantaged accounts. So go check out that episode uh, with with Stephen. Super interesting. You know, Clark, I forgot to bring this up earlier. We got an, an email from a listener in Holland who wants to know your story and when we're going to have you on as a guest. <laughs> he, he doesn't. He doesn't think that you need any qualification to come on. He just thinks that you should come on, which we've talked about, and we've had a few other listeners talk about too. Well, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll keep thinking about that one. We gotta get. We gotta get Clark on here one day for sure. For sure. So anyway, if you're interested in being on the show, send us an email: millionairesunveiled at gmail dot com. Also, we all have to submit a question to ask a millionaire on our website. You can do that through Speakpipe. We've had a few of those recently. Always looking for great questions to ask our millionaires. Uh, also, some of those are, are get answered in some of the, uh, the social media on the Facebook group and whatnot. Lots of interesting topics. You know, I've had uh, various friends reach out year end here with all sorts of questions and, you know, different situations they're dealing with. There's been a lot of companies who, you know, stock options and we're kind of getting into that age where a lot of our friends are involved in these kind of companies that are VC backed or PE backed and have all sorts of different compensation structures and uh, makes for some interesting topics for sure. And we'll, we'll definitely continue to bring more and more of those on the show as we find guests that that have them. And like we said last week, if you're a business owner and you'd like to come on, we'd love to have you. We do have a few more of those coming in in the pipeline uh, in the next you know se- several months here, but uh, always looking for more. So with any further delay, let's get into the episode with Sal. Hey, Sal. Welcome to the show. How are you, Clark? Thanks for having me. Pleasure and a privilege. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So we, we just kind of mentioned a brief overview or intro at the beginning, but in your words here, let's get a brief intro on who Sal is and who we're talking to. Thanks. No, I appreciate it. My name is Sal Bashemi. I'm born and raised in New York. I've lived in New York City up until recently. Uh, I moved to Las Vegas where we control a lot of commercial real estate out here and in the West. And uh, I started my career actually after college going to school in New York City. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't. Through successful networking, I was able to find a job on Wall Street um, in uh, doing investment banking, where you learn a lot about investments and investing and things like that. Um, at a firm uh, called Goldman Sachs. And at the age of 29, I decided to go out on my own, and I raised $30 million from a asset manager in New York on Park Avenue. And we basically bought a lot of the distressed whole loans and some other stuff from Bear Stearns during the great credit crisis. After that, there was a lot of opportunity out west, and there was a lot of money that was uh, afforded to me if I had went out west to be able to discover some distressed opportunities in commercial at the time. And that's exactly what I did and moved out to Las Vegas where I had my second institutional fund, which is where we basically um, bought distressed real estate from private hard money lenders who overbid the market really. And, and the uh, investors were sort of left with the pieces. So we were able to put together a structure where they were getting some newfound money. And then in 2013, the market got a little frothy at some points and we turned 
our guns uh, to the families who had always supported us and me um, and a lot of these investments. And those were mostly life science companies, uh, sorry, life science family offices uh, and investors who had been very successful in one space. And they trusted me. And so I trusted them now. We were making investments into that space. And two years ago, we started Dandrew Partners Encore Ventures, which is a venture capital fund that is focused mostly on life sciences. It has a pretty high MOIC right now. Um, it's closed and it's performing well. And in the meantime, what we do now is I manage a uh, two family offices. One's called HRN and the other one, Dandrew Partners. And we just basically allocate money on behalf of very wealthy families into world-class assets managed by world-class entrepreneurs or operators. Wow, thanks for the background. So just big picture here, when, when you mm-hmm. left Goldman at a young age and you said, okay, I want to go start on my own and do something and start my own thing, did you know what that looked like? Like, did you have the exact strategy of what you wanted to do or were you kind of learning on the fly as you started? You know, when you, there's the technical aspect of it, which is important, but really it's the fundraising aspect that comes into that you are left to your own devices to do. Um, even though you have a good leverageable brand behind you, you still have to be able to get people to write the check. And what I learned early on was that I needed to be, when I was raising capital, what I learned that in order to get that, I had to help other people first and show conviction in them before institutionally they would show conviction in me. Everybody else was writing 2,000 word, one paragraph emails asking and had a 20 megabyte, you know, pitch deck attached to it in the PDF format. That is not the way to do it. It really taught me to, you have to really hone in on the relationships more when you're going out to raise capital. So how'd you do that initially? You probably had some connections, right? From Goldman. Yeah, I did. So it's an interesting story. I write about it in the book. I didn't want to say that, but I write about it in the book where one guy had a problem where he had a defaulted mezzanine note on his books. And he didn't know what to do with it, but um, he had an issue, which was something that I didn't know about, but it was coming apparent of is that his entire bonus was at risk if he couldn't clear this one loan off his books, somewhat of a profit or at least taking care of it. And so I helped him do that. And because I helped him do that, he was able to save his bonus. I was able to save his ego as he was able to rent his house out in the Hamptons and invite his whole class from Darden or seem like out there to his house so that you know, he could have his own ego and prestige to go along with it. Um, but that's how you really work with institutions. And working with families since then, family offices, is a much different experience than working with institutions, which is mostly who I've been working with now since 2000, uh, yeah, since 2013. All right. So we're going to jump around a little bit here. But if somebody wants to get involved in working in the family office, in my experience, you kind of have to have an in. Right. Because a lot of the family office jobs say experience in family office. So how do you get involved in that space if that's where you want to be? You really don't, because unless you come from an institution where you have what we call bioside experience, it's and you have a relationship with an established operating family office, it just doesn't happen. There's just a lot of nepotism first. And if they do, usually in these families, what they do is that they have succession plans. And those succession plans are you can come back and work for the family, but first you have to get a job, then you have to get your MBA, and then you can come back and work for the family office. So it's not easy for an outsider to get a job. You know, it's not like somebody can just walk in and say, hey, you know, can I get a job here? It's a very, very specialized area of finance that not a lot of people can do. You you sort of have to have had proven skills and leadership in other areas in finance uh, before, you know, anyone will will really look at you. Now, I have a partner in my multifamily office who 
was at Rockefeller, but that's a much larger established family office. But he also had a different discipline and he also had someone on the on an end too as well. But you have to really ask yourself, why are you going to want to work at a family office in the first place? <laughs> right. So, so you went off, you raised this $30 million, and what did you start? What did you invest in? So it was distressed real estate, and it was a lot of the what we call the whole loans that Bear Stearns had had on their books they needed to get rid of before they went bankrupt. And a few regional banks, too, were holding on to a lot of bad loans. In the business, there were a lot of, there was the two different types of lenders, but most of them were what we call, they're, they're called storage or moving companies. And a lot of the lenders never held on to their loans. They simply moved them. And the ones that were had problems or defaults, which were in some pretty questionable neighborhoods around America is what was causing the problems. And those are the ones that we were able to buy at a discount from Bear Stearns. And so basically we just turned it into like a velocity fund. We bought by the gallon and we sold it off by the shot or the quarter to to localize investors who took down that product pretty quickly. And this is all class A commercial? No, no, this is residential. And and for $30 million, you can't do anything in class A commercial. This was in uh, residential loans, whole loans. Okay. So initially it did start residential and then you made the shift later. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then Vegas because of the opportunity. So you kind of shifted from New York to Vegas. Well, Vegas, there was an opportunity there because there were a lot of hard money loans that were blowing up. Uh, Sorry, a lot of hard money funds that were blowing up. And those hard money funds... Um, had investors that were either angry, apathetic, or helpful. And the ones who were helpful were the ones that had the most money into it. So we structured a business plan to use a Dutch auction technique to be able to buy these loans from people to be able to gather a majority ownership at around 51%, at 51%. From there, what we could do is we could structure it into an LLC, package it nicely, and sell it off to someone. And that was mostly commercial properties too. And there were commercial properties that people had lent on, but they didn't have any underwriting experience. And you have to remember, this is like during 2006, seven parts of 2008, 2005, where parts of the country like Irvine, California, everybody had a had a Ferrari because they were making $250,000 on a loan using <laughs> other people's money. So the risk dynamic was very asymmetric to begin with. And we went in and we were able to actually, you know, find some newfound money for these investors. But in the most importantly, what we were able to do is, and I actually wrote my first book on it called Making the Yield, because a lot of people didn't know how to make these loans, but they thought it was easy money. And it didn't turn out that way. And it actually turned out to be one of the most expensive books on uh, Amazon for real estate investing, because that has nothing to do about real estate investing and being a landlord. It has more to do with being a lender. So how long then did the residential last? Oh, that was a, just a two-year fund. Just two years. And then you started a different fund. Yep. So did yeah, you think... Had, it was a very fast... It was it was a business plan that catered to several things, right? Because I think a lot of people, Clark, is that they come out and they say, well, I'm going to start a fund and I'm going to do this. But you have to answer for a lot of things and solve for a lot of issues that aren't yours. And that is, what about your investors? How long are you going to take their money off their balance sheet for? What can you do to structure a product so that they're happy that's going to be making it easier for them to stroke the check. And a lot of that has to do with duration and terms and other things. So did you think just looking back on your whole career, obviously we'll keep going through it here, but looking back, did you think this is where life was going to take you? No, I had no idea. I I really didn't. I was pre-med in college. I was a biology and chemistry major. And I also rode. I wasn't a good rower, but I enjoyed it. And I rode for four years and I still enjoy a lot of those relationships, but I really 
thought it was coming close to maybe pursuing a PhD program, which I didn't want to do. And thank, thankfully, looking back 20 years later, it's a decision I didn't make, but it was the leadership through the mentors that I had when I was working on Wall Street and afterwards, and even today through the family offices who support us and who we support, that's really helped me make the sensitive choices because I've always learned to listen to the wisdom in the room, the gray hair. And a lot of what I owe my career to is just asking these guys, if you were 30 years younger right now in this market, what would you be doing? And that has given me the ability to do a lot more with a lot less. So then then what? What was the next fund? The next fund we put together in 2019 was called Danju Partners Encore Ventures. And that was something where we made life science investments with a handful of families into operator, into companies that were operated by experienced entrepreneurs, mostly in healthcare, telemedicine, and the such. We are bullish in the life sciences way before the pandemic happened. And so this has really turned out to be a really good investment. And if it wasn't for those relationships, I don't think I would have been able to become a life sciences venture capital manager, to be frank with you. And some of those exits are going to be making a legacy and not only in just creating a lot of wealth, but it's going to create a tremendous impact to people in the world because a lot of it is going to affect, of course, treatment for and cures, hopefully, for sicknesses and, and disease. Yeah, pretty amazing. And, and so just backing up, were you from that initial real estate fund in Vegas to now where you're at, are you working with the same people or have relationships? Yeah, what we do, what we, yeah, so what we've done is we've actually changed it. So now we don't do fun stuff because we don't like doing fun stuff anymore. It's just in a real estate fund, what happens is you have crossed promote. So if one deal blows up and you have a, say you have like a, you know, a home run, but then you have a total wipeout. Well, you're, you're, at, you're left at zero, right? So what we do is we use different structures now to be able to make allocations with the same families into private equity, real estate, and venture capital, what we call direct investments. So we don't make fund level investments. We make level, we make direct investments into the companies themselves um, in the capital structure. So as you as you've written this new book, Sal, investing legacy, how the point zero zero one percent invest, right? Yeah. Is it mainly small business? Can you become that wealthy off of just investing in the stock market or real estate? No, of course not. No, no. I mean, Clark, tell me someone you know who's retired comfortably on a 401k in the last four years and they don't have a pension or any other income. They're just nothing as far as a, uh, you know, a traditional pension. Do you know anyone? Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on spending, right? You have those people that spend $50,000 a year. No, I mean, if you're I mean, trying do you to- really think that's the key to wealth, I mean, do, do, no, it's uh, that's not how wealth is done today. Today, wealth is done through creating businesses and controlling media. That's how wealth is created today. If you think about it, an Instagram celebrity has my cousin, for example, she's beautiful. She has 3.2 million followers. Those followers are her media. And that's what's making her millions of dollars a year. So people, I mean, as, as they invest through these life science companies, what's the success and failure rate? Well, it depends, right? How much does a bag of groceries weigh? <laughs> right? Tell me. A bag of groceries? Yeah. Oh, who knows? I don't know. 10 pounds? Exactly. Depends on what you get. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, so when you look at something, you put a broad structure together across something where you're looking at it as, 
you know, you're grouping everything together, you forget that there are certain things that have much more of a material and acute effect on it than other things. And with life sciences, the way we follow it is we always make sure that we follow the smartest investors in the rooms. And to us, those are the established families who are making the initial investment because they spend tremendous amounts of money on due diligence because for them, it's not about losing 500 or a million dollars. It's about their legacy and and tarnishing their reputation, which is something that you don't see the middle class really care about. The middle class is more worried about reading an investment list, much like a wine list, right down to the bottom to the right, the highest price is the best. Uh, because their investment initiative is really to get rich quick in a short period of time. Whereas when you're dealing with the one thousandth of the one percent, they're more focused on legacy and impact and making sure that they have another thousand words in their obituary. So how do you invest then? I invest the same way I do with those people. I put it into the same uh, illiquid assets. We don't do anything liquid. I don't have anything liquid. Most of the investments that I have are class A commercial real estate, what we call statement class real estate. This could be office buildings, anything class A, things that your friends and family talk about behind your back saying, I know the guy that owns this building. Um, we also invest into fine art um, and funds that are commingled for uh, lending against fine art, sort of like hard money for fine art. And also in venture in, in venture capital investments through direct investments where we invest in these life science companies that have very strong lead families or investors as the lead investors who are leading the way. Um, and we get invited because of our reputation for being able to execute on these deals. And it's very attractive to our families because it fits their risk profile, not risk in the way of far as failure is concerned, but risk in the far as um, it fits their impact statement properly and where they see themselves in the next 40 years, which is really what they care about. And if you think about it, they have a huge initiative like Rockefeller, for example, and they want to eradicate disease. It takes a tremendous amount of discipline and an entirely different thought process to be able to put together an impact plan to sustain that as compared to a typical middle class um, investor who's looking for something where they don't have to pay a lot of fees. They're following along with the herd. And it's liquid. So you met, you mentioned impact plan. Let's go into that. You, you've seen sure. probably in the news, right? There's been a couple of people come out and say, hey, I don't want to leave that much money to my kids. So how did yeah. these folks decide how much to leave and who to leave it to? Well, that that's uh, the, the question about who to leave it and leave it to. That's an entirely different question. Um, the impact plan has to do with how the family wants to be branded and their legacy going forward. A great example of this would be Bill and Melinda Gates. Now they're separated, but we sort of know how he's branded and how he wants to change the world. That's his impact statement, right? He's not chasing after buying cryptocurrencies or anything. He is making an impact by changing the world, whether it's through pharmaceuticals or whatever, what have you. That is what he's focused on doing because that's what he wants to make his mark on the world for doing. What you're talking about is how much to leave and everything. And that's something that's personal to each family. Each family has their own dynamics. Each family has different drivers and idiosyncrasies. For example, if I said before, if the if you're running a big family office and you have a manufacturing company that's throwing off millions of dollars a year in free cash flow, you're going to need someone probably like me or someone who has experience doing this, making sure that money is put somewhere in commercial real estate or what, whatever the impact statement is for the next few years to be able to make sure that that legacy is sustained. And that could be through a foundation. As far as allocating, you know, 
who gets what in a will. I mean, that's up to anyone's guess. Hollywood does a great job of satirizing that. Um, but I think, you know, just in the, <laughs> just looking at it in the news, I think Shaquille O'Neal's got the, he's got the good idea, the right idea there that we ain't rich, I'm rich. <laughs> and, you know, that's, I'm not <laughs> saying that that's the lead way to go, but I think, you know, everybody has their own ways of doing it. And it's, it's interesting because the people who are saying that are the first generation, what we call wealth creators. So they have a different view of that than an if Shaq inherited his own $200 million fortune from his father. You see what I'm saying? There's a yeah, different uh, relationship there. And, and I don't think Shaq would be quite as driven as he is because if he knew he was going to get $200 million dropped on his lap, would he ever become the multifaceted American hero that he is today, right? I mean, he sells insurance. He's a basketball national champion several times over. Who, that, that drive comes from somewhere. And I think he's trying to preserve that as it relates to his kids to make sure that they're not entitled in a country where it seems as though everybody's entitled. So how do you do that, Sal? You raise your kids. You have to raise your kids to really be entrepreneurial. I mean, that's just the only way I've seen this happen in families where it's been successful is that the kids have always had some sort of a granular level in the business and even love them or hate them. But even Donald Trump Jr. worked, you know, clerical jobs when he was, you know, in the family at the plaza, he was doing things. Ivana, uh, Ivanka started her own business, her own brands. That I think is very important, but you have to make sure that those entrepreneurial values are passed down because until recently over the past 10 years, those values really didn't exist in the middle class unless you worked on Wall Street or unless you, you know, made a lot of money or, you know, sold a company or something, that wealth was kind of hard to come by. Now it's become a lot more democratized. Now it's become democratized. It's okay. How do you want, how do you see that as a function of your legacies, meaning your kids? Yeah. And even you mentioned the media account earlier, right? Like I think it's easier now for people to go do that than it was 15, 20 years ago. People there's feel no like excuse they can... today. Yeah, yeah. No, go ahead. No, I'm just saying that there's no excuse today. Like, I think what's happening in the middle class is you're seeing the emergence of a of an entrepreneuring class. And that's mostly, you know, it used to be real estate, but now I think it's mostly media because media has become the equal opportunity lever for people to use to be able to create wealth. And it's up to your own skill. If you know what you're doing and you know how to monetize your media, then you're doing really, really well. And you could look at any superstar. Actually, people who are dead are making money. Marilyn Monroe has 1.2 million followers on Twitter as of a month ago when I last checked. She's still selling stuff, right? Uh, Elvis Presley, some people still think he's alive, right, Clark? 2.3 million followers. I'm sure he's selling stuff too. So media is the way people are going. um, And it's... uh, you know, there's a privacy premium today, too. And I think it's how, you know, how much you can make as a function of how much you're willing to share with the public. And I do talk about that in Investing Legacy, too. Yeah, let's let's get into it, because I would assume, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume some of these families don't want to be that public. They don't. And actually, a lot of them didn't want to be interviewed. But the ones who did, thankfully, were in the book. The media today and the one thousandth of the one percent, the top one thousandth of the one percent. There's a gulf that's probably as wide as the curvature of the earth because there's a lack of distrust today. Um, but because of social media and because of other things, it's they're slowly becoming a trust that's becoming more and more. It it it, it it's more auspicious than it has been in the past. And you know, if you were to look at the Allen and Co. you know conferences that happen, you're starting to see with these powwows that maybe certain things 
could be happening, especially with what's happening today with the evolution of Facebook moving to Meta, Meta, and you know a lot of the other things that seem to be happening faster than I ever thought. So at some point they're going to have to work together. But right now, as it relates to the top one thousandth of the one percent, you know the people who are part of that who who have exclusive media that I can think of offhand who are would probably be the Kardashians and, and families like those. So does this book teach someone how to do it or is it just more informative? Meaning if somebody's listening to this and they say, hey, I want to do that or I want to get invested. I mean, a lot of this is do hard what? to access probably, right? Invest yeah, in some of these startup companies or life sciences or whatever, right? Well, we don't talk about life sciences. We don't get into it, but it's more or less table matters for the 0.001% to tell them exactly what they can expect. Because in a world today, Clark, where there's just so much noise with cryptocurrencies and fractionalized stock trading and, you know, anything you can think of that can be financialized is increasingly becoming financialized. This is sort of grandfather's book on investing as to how to, how to invest as a function of not only your own identity, but the legacy that you want to leave. But it explores that in five different avatars, because I think a lot of people think that, you know, I have to invest like Warren Buffett and think the long term and other people, they might have more of a mobile type of personality and they might be the guys who are looking to start businesses and sell them. Everybody has a different intellectual bias on investments because of what they've learned mostly through their parents who have been through the Great Depression and don't know anything better than that. So this opens up the world to how 0.001% actually invests through what we call other things, which they, which we call statement assets, but the whole driver behind that is to provide them legitimacy that just merely buying a Rolls Royce or a Ferrari can't give. So why do you say on asset allocation, why do you say commercial over residential? That's a very good question. Today, I, we, a lot of families, a lot of the wealthy, wealthy families I know do not like to lend to residential because there's a tremendous amount of political risk today, especially in New York and other areas. You don't know uh, if there's going to be a moratorium that can come or if local city, state politics could do anything to harm your ability to capture rent from your tenants. The smart money always likes to invest in commercial real estate because they want their tenants to be better capitalized and have better credit than their than they do. And that's really the draw to commercial real estate and the class A stuff we do is that these tenants are going to pay their rent each month with automatic escalation sometimes. And you don't have to worry about a politician cutting off your livelihood. Don't you though, Sal, just to play devil's advocate? Because in New York, it's going that way on commercial stuff as well. I don't invest in New York. And then, I mean, I guess someone could make the argument right during COVID commercial got hit pretty hard. No, it didn't. Commercial to me didn't get hard because we have a class A 166,000 square foot industrial facility that we've allocated into in Vegas. And that was seen as an essential service. And during that time, it was actually leased up to 98% occupancy with 15% to 25% increases in rent than what we originally underwrote it for. So it takes a lot more than just saying real estate and throwing money at it because not all real estate is as sankrasat as it's supposed to be. You never know if you're going to collect the next day. That's what we've learned in New York. <laughs> yeah, I can agree with that after doing this. In New York. <laughs> I didn't want no, to I mean, it's just a disaster, it. right? You get It's just too, it's too regulated. And then, it, I don't know, it's just a mess. And, yeah, but how do you underwrite for that, though, Clark? Like, how do you tell oh, you your can't. lender, I can't pay the rent because I can't pay the mortgage because, because politi- a politician said I don't have to anymore? It doesn't make sense. That's something that keeps people up at night. 
And so if you were to look at the hierarchy of real estate, residential is always a stepping stone. But what people really want to do is they want to get to the glamour and the glory of having real commercial tenants with real balance sheets who are going to pay and lock into leases for the next seven to 10 years. Yeah. And really, I mean, if you're starting out, it doesn't even have to be a big class A piece, right? You, you hear like just the average person that leases to a dental office and they stay for 30 years and the, and the owner doesn't have to worry about it at all. Yeah, that's fine. That's perfect. It depends on your level of sophistication, but it also depends on your network too, right? If you're sitting in middle America, right. you know, you're probably going to be pitched insurance products and all sorts of hokey things, right? But if you're, you know, belong to exclusive club societies or you have a, you know, a track record and, you know, you've invested with other families or, or people before or consequence, then the opportunities come a lot better. The, the opportunities are a lot better. They're a lot more qualified, but there's also safety in numbers in the form of leadership of smart people. And so that's do what you, I like. You don't see that in, say, like an investment club in Tampa. Do you invest in the stock market at all? No, I don't. With the exception of any one of our companies going public. And over the summer, Airbnb went public. So we did hold that stock for a little bit, but we got out of it. But we don't hold on to these stocks long term. Once they go public or they're sold, we get out of it. And we have the same thing happening right now to us with 23andMe, uh, where we invested in that. I think in 2016, 2017, we invested in that. Richard Branson's SPAC bought it. And we should be having a liquidation event coming up, I think, in, I think actually in December, if I recall correctly. What's your take on the SPACs? They're kind of slowing down here. I don't like them. Uh, they're great, but it's another acronym for a blank check that I, I really, the people who gravitate towards those, I don't really understand what their, what the draw is to them. I think they're a great vehicle to take out guys like me who have investments in companies that might want to be acquired. But for someone who, it, to me, it never makes sense to give someone a buyer a blank check when you don't have to account for valuing any of these companies. You know, they can just go in and buy it and, you know, they have 100% discretion. So the things I like about private equity and real estate is that I have control and discretion over the terms and the price that I pay for the stuff going in at it. So that's why we never really get hurt because we're the earlier investors or what you call the risk investors. But the SPAC investors are the ones who are going to be holding the bag the end. And I don't, I don't know how that works yet. Um, if you were to look at other things in the past that have gone that same route, some, some have worked out well, some haven't, but to me, it's just a fad at this point. And it's not something that I would invest into personally, but I would sell one of my companies to a SPAC for certain. Yeah. It already seems like it's starting to number of SPACs formed and buying your new acquisitions is coming, is falling, right? It is falling. Yes. As I've read that too. I've read that too. Yeah. So, Commercial real estate market or real estate market in general, where do you think it's at right now? There's there's a lot of distress that has been cleared the mar- through the market so far. And I think that there has been some distress, but not a lot of distress because there's just been so much private capital has been holding a lot of these things together. You will see some distress, but I think if you were to see some real, real material distress, it would come if there's any sort of an interest rate rise. And what the first domino to fall on that would be would be anyone who went in with a 100% mortgage or, you know, went in and didn't know how to value an apartment building. If they see any sort of increase in uh, interest rates, it doesn't necessarily mean that the landlord's mortgage rent is mortgage payments going to go up, 
what it does mean is that the value of the building might go down because the cost of capital is more expensive now. So I think it's a very dangerous line right now. The Fed has done a great job of supporting people. There have been some loss. There have been some hoteliers who went out of business. There's some multifamily guys who got a little late into the game before pandemic hit. And I think they got hit hard and they're learning the hard way now um, about you know reserves. There will be, I think, some distress in some localized sections of larger cities. But for the most part, unless interest rates go up materially, meaning 25, 50 basis points, Depending on how, you know, the basis and all things considered as far as valuation and knowing that real estate, the money is made at the buy, it's still a safe investment because the United States is still the safest place in the world for rich people to invest. There's no shortage of money coming in from overseas to invest in these assets. Well, that's, I think, part of the thing that's keeping everything so propped up or the values high, right, is the amount of liquidity that's in the market. Everybody has cash. It's filthy how much liquidity is out there. It's just filthy. This country has too much cash. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. So, Sal, what does the future look like for for you now going forward? What are you excited about? What are you interested in? What's on your plate here moving forward? Yeah, you know, we're following. That's a good question. What's on our plate next for two exciting projects in real estate, both class A, both statement class. One of which we're following Elon Musk through one of the largest reorganizations or replacements, probably the most dramatic in U.S. history, too, is he's moving Tesla's headquarters to Austin. We'll be doing a Class A development there. That will finish before the end of the year. We also have something else in Boston, and it's called Life Sciences Real Estate. And Life Science Real Estate is what we call the wet labs, the R&D, the meds and eds, the educational facilities. These places are close to the educational facilities that develop a lot of the therapies and drugs, which are then commercialized and bought. So it's a it's incubation type of space. Because of the pandemic, these rents have been skyrocketing only because there's been so much money being thrown at the space. And there's so many pharmaceutical companies that are looking to buy these companies. So it sort of follows our conviction. It's real estate. We have a lot of conviction in the life sciences space. It just happens to be through our network and through uh, one of my partners that we were able to source this opportunity to be able to be a part of this, you know, an asset which a lot of people would love to add to a layer of their legacies, being a life science real estate owner for where probably a lot of therapies will be not only discovered and, and hopefully brought to fruition, where I think the next revolution and, or sorry, the next renaissance in, in America is right now is it's going through a, a pretty uncertain time is that I think we're going through a life sciences-led revolution and Boston will be there as the beacon just as she was during the founding of her country. So it's kind of exciting. Yeah, it's starting to pick up there, biotech as well. Okay, so we mentioned the book earlier, Sal. Where can people find it? Or if they want to learn more about what you're doing or learn more about you as a yeah, person, we, where can they can, find it? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. They can go to salvatorebashemi.com. Hopefully that'll be spelled on, my, on the interview here. S-A-L-V-A-T-O-R-E, just like uh, the shoe designer, Salvatore Ferragamo, and the last name, just like my cousin, the famous actor, Steve. Or you can go to investinglegacy.com to get a copy of the book. And before you do that, there's also a checklist that I put together for a lot of people that sort of points to them in a tongue-in-cheek way how a lot of people have lost their wealth in the past. And it's a checklist of 10 items that you got to make sure you avoid to make sure that people who do come into circumstance that they don't necessarily squander it or 
be easily led around by sell-side investment professionals who might not have their best interests in mind. So there's a lot of information there. If you go to investinglegacy.com, you can get the free report, but you can also buy the book as well. And I'll be narrating it, and there'll be a copy of the audiobook version too going up not too soon, and that'll be part of the book. So if you buy the book now, you'll also get a copy of the audiobook version, which will be released probably in the next 30 days. Very cool. Did you do the audiobook on your first one, or is this the first time? This is the first time, Clark. This is the first time I'm doing it. And right. it's interesting because in Las Vegas, where I am, there's a studio where I record a lot of these podcasts, um, or sorry, a lot of these uh, presentations for our investors. And I met someone by the name of Mel Robbins, and she was recording her book there. And I said, why didn't you? She's a very famous person in the um, you know, self-discovery space. Uh, she she's a leader in sort of the um, how people can sort of get to know themselves better and overcome a lot of um, psychological maybe issues that they use to discount themselves. So she's very well renowned. But when I told her I was thinking about outsourcing reading the book, she told me that would be a shame because people want to buy into, you know, they want to hear the authenticity, sort of like a band. You don't see a cover band and pay $500 to see is someone who looks like Billy Idol, you want to see Billy Idol, right? So, and and that sort of galvanized to me that I need to do it myself. My first two books, I hired someone to do it because I didn't really have the time to do it. But going forward, I think it's something that I can do going forward. It's just making the time to do it. But there's been a lot of demand. And also it's being translated as I speak now into Mandarin and Spanish. Oh, very cool. Very cool. All right. So, Sal, thanks for coming on. Just in closing here, give us your last words of advice for the average investor that's probably listening to this show and listening to our podcast. What would it be? What's the advice that we haven't covered? The final words here that you'd like to leave. Yeah. Before parting with your money, always ask how your interests are aligned. The wealthy always want to make sure that their interests are aligned, not just with fees, but also if anything goes wrong, who gets hurt, who walks away. And I think who walks away unscathed and who gets hurt. What I'd issue, what I would urge you to do is that if you're looking at anything in real estate, specifically investing in something with someone else, ask yourself, how are my interests aligned and what happens if things go wrong? And the best way to ask that is to ask the hard questions is who's really in charge of this and are they qualified to really manage this project? And then that'll really, I think, peel the layers back where you won't feel bad saying no to maybe friends and family who are trying to experiment in multifamily commercial real estate, maybe in a, you know, in a smaller town, this will give you the confidence sort of to be able to answer those questions with another question. Awesome. Great advice. Well, thanks, Sal. Thanks for coming on again, everybody. That's Sal Buscemi. I appreciate your time here. Thank you. Thank you. Clark, thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.